and welcome to the Canaan Rents Podcast, Volume 11, Issue 512, in which we'll be discussing the longtime coming Kentucky Route Zero. Joining me, Ryan Zhao, in Issue 512 are James Carter. Hello. Leah Haydu. You know, it's funny. If you're actually in Kentucky, the regional accent would probably make it Route Zero, but nobody ever says that. So. It's <laughs> That's funny. true. And John Salmon. Uh, hi. All right, Kentucky Route Zero. This is going to be a uh, perhaps a, a interesting, maybe a little bit less structured of a discussion. It's a very kind of odd, dreamlike, impressionistic type of game. And so uh, I think up front, though, we do want to stress that there will be spoilers discussed in this podcast. Though this game is, as I mentioned, a little bit more dreamlike and impressionistic, there still is very much an overarching plot with characters and events and, you know, very important things to discover along the way. The manner in which we've come to the game will probably differ more than even most games on the Kinderman's podcast due to this game's weird release schedule. Yeah, we'd like to kind of uh, reinforce the spoiler warning. There is stuff that can be spoiled, and it is something that I think is worth experiencing on your own. Anyways, uh, this game was released, as we, as I mentioned, in a very kind of unusual way. Um, it made a big splash in January of 2013 when it came onto the scene as a uh, kind of a standalone Act 1, Act 1 of 5, with the idea that you pay for the package up front and then you get all of the episodes as they come out. It was actually priced very low um, at the very beginning. I don't remember whether it was through like a humble bundle or whether it was uh, just priced low on the steam storefront but yeah you could get the first episode the first act for very very little money and then that would kind of carry you through uh, for the rest of the game and then um, by now you can pick them all up on uh, not only pc mac and linux but also on switch ps4 and xbox one through the tv edition anyways act one came out in january 7th 2013 and Act 2 followed shortly after in May of 2013. Um, Act 3 came a year after that in May of 2014. Act 4 in July of 2016. The final episode did end up releasing uh, almost four years after Act 4. Um, Act 5 came out on January 28th of 2020, making this game uh, more than two years old in its entirety right now almost a decade old, or at least a decade old fixture in the lives of those of us who have been playing since the very beginning. This was developed by Cardboard Computer, which is a trio of developers, Jake Elliott, who has um, worked on other types of kind of non-violent and slow-paced experimental games since 2010. He, uh, he also creates uh, some experimental music, some of which he's released under the Junebug, I guess, character moniker in this game uh the june bug performance in act three is actually him singing pitched up um tomas kaminsky is uh in charge of graphics as well as some additional programming and then ben babbitt is in charge of the music although i get the sense from the uh, company's kind of self-descriptions that they all kind of wore multiple hats they all kind of contributed to um, all the different aspects of the game uh, previously, the team has worked on a few small kind of artsy type of games, including uh, Balloon Diaspora, Ruins, A House in California, a, a few, you know, kind of text adventure or graphic adventure type of games. Um, but this is, to the state, still the team's only kind of major commercial release. This was published by Annapurna Interactive eventually, 
Um, it was self-published at the time of its 2013 launch. And then, you know, as it picked up Steam and as it was gearing up for its console launch across uh, Nintendo Switch and the other consoles, it picked up Annapurna Interactive as its publisher at that point. And then they've kind of taken over even the, the PC side of things as well. Reviews and awards. The Metacritic per act uh, rating range ranges from about 81 to about 91. Um, and, and then as a complete package altogether, um, reviews typically hang around the 88 range, which is pretty high for any game. You know, it's kind of bar none. This is a point and click adventure. Uh, the, the game is described as being a tragedy rather than being a kind of empowerment journey. Yeah. The game has very major themes of class divide. We can see that most in Acts 1 and 5. Let's talk about our histories with it. Um, myself, I came to this game when it first released in 2013. I played it pretty much right off the bat because I was very kind of hungry for this type of indie game back then. It was early enough in the kind of a renaissance indie scene uh, that uh, something like this could get enough kind of headlines and enough traction. You know, nowadays there's just so much out there that this kind of thing does uh, tend to get a little bit lost, or it can at least. But uh, yeah, I, I was there since 2013, and I've been playing each chapter as it's come out since. Uh, John, how about you? I don't think I've ever played any of the sort of last decade or so's uh, episodic games, all the Telltale ones and the Life is Strangers. Mm. I don't think I've ever played any of them as they've been released and waited. Like I have a shocking, not necessarily attention span, but maybe like a shocking level of patience where, I mean, I might have originally seen Kentucky Route Zero and thought, oh, that's cool. But, you know, there's another episode of it planned. So that'll probably come out quite quickly and uh, I'll get on that. <laughs> and then that's like four months, which Seven is... Seven years later. Yeah. yeah, that is a long, long time between... I mean, even the four months between Act 1 and Act 2 and the mm -hmm. way that the story and stuff is structured here. I just, I cannot imagine how people sat there waiting for four years between the the third or the fourth and fifth acts waiting to see the conclusion of this story especially after what happens uh, in act four that is just it seems unbearable the idea of not being able to move on to it so i i think i've been aware of kentucky route zero probably for at least the vast majority of it its release window if not the entirety like definitely remember hearing things about the first couple of acts and seeing some of the reviews and things that were very glowing at the time so yeah i i just I waited until it all came out. I mean, I think I, I eventually played this about 18 months ago. I just did the the thing that I've done with all of these other games. I pretty much sat down and I played an episode of it. I had a break for a day or maybe a day and a half to kind of sink in with it and then just continued. And I did that over over the course of maybe a week and played through the whole whole game pretty much just in essentially like not one sitting, but basically just one long sort of long-term playthrough in the way that you might do anything else and I, I fully intended to to play through it again for the show to kind of refresh myself on it and I gotta say I did the first episode this, I don't know how much we want to go into like the actual plot events of the game but there is there is something that I found genuinely quite traumatic and horrible that happens during the fourth act Playing through the beginning of the game and meeting some of those early characters again, it, it sort of filled me with this dread and this melancholy mm, of, yeah. I kind of don't want to have that experience again. It's almost like 
seeing that bit of the game later on that I'm sure you're all well aware what I'm talking about it's almost like going through sort of a, a bereavement and a grieving process and mm. I just didn't really want to have to do it again like I, I feel like I've been in the trenches and I've I've seen what the game has to offer and as much as I really enjoy it I'm not sure that I'm like mentally ready to to see that again and to experience that again. So unfortunately I haven't had a a chance to replay it in full, but hopefully that's not going to be too much of an issue. Hopefully I can remember what happened at least. It's a very interesting perspective. I appreciate that. And maybe it is worth kind of noting perhaps a little bit of a content warning for the the game as well that uh, you know it does touch on themes of uh, alcoholism, of debt, um kind of crippling debt to powerful companies. It, it deals with, uh, you know, worker exploitation and with uh, oftentimes worker death at the negligence of their employers. And so, uh, yeah, I think there is a lot in here that could potentially be upsetting for people as they experience it. And it's a very kind of valuable thing to bring into it as well. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. James, how about you? When did you come to this one? Uh, so a lot of what uh, a lot of my take is is kind of similar to John's, I guess. And I I definitely heard of this in 2013. I bought the game in July 2013. Um, as you say, it was available for purchase on Steam as a here's episode one. Although by that point, episode two would have been released as well. But so, but obviously, I I had access to the whole thing. I didn't play it until July. 2019, six years after I bought it, six and a half years after it first released, um, I was going through my Steam catalogue and just downloading and firing up a bunch of games that I hadn't touched, um, and this one came up, and so I played through episode one then, and at that stage, obviously by that point, four episodes were released, I knew the fifth was coming, and I thought, you know what, it's been six years, this is a game I really want to uh, sink my teeth into, but I may as well wait for the fifth episode now. And so, yeah, I I ended up, my full playthrough was December 2020, the end of an incredibly strange year. I played it between the 22nd and 31st of December of that year, so right over Christmas and New Year. That's an interesting time to be playing this game. Um, And about four, so at the end of a year where I'd spent uh, more than half of my time shielding uh, indoors, keeping myself away from anyone I could manage to keep myself away from. During that time, I went outside only to put the bins out and bring them back in. That was it. The rest of the time I was indoors. And four days after I finished this game, I went into another period where I was doing that. So a really weird uh, headspace to find myself in to play this game. Um, And it absolutely uh, floored me, I think it's fair to say. Um, And a bit unlike John, actually, I almost wish now that I had been playing along with it because for the past... 15 months or so that it is now since I've played it, I feel like I've been trying to process way too much information Mm. about this game. Whereas had I been able to play it, yes, with two and four year gaps, uh, I think I would have been able to process each episode a little better on its own um, and take in what each part of the game had to say for itself rather than as the whole uh, of the game. Um, In terms of getting ready for this, I... I've got literally got it downloaded on my Xbox in front of me. I originally played on PlayStation, um, got it on my Xbox because it happens to be on Game Pass at the moment, and fully intended to play it and started building up to, and I don't know when I'll be able to play this game again, but it is not now. It is episode four, and it's absolutely Conway's story 
like John, I, I don't have a great background in American literature and I don't have a great background in depression era literature. And many of the, the, um, the sort of references that this game draws on historical, literary, artistic. But what I do have that this, this game completely skewered is over the past 20 years, an increasing, I think, awareness of the ways in which people and workers are treated and the ways in which systemically that treatment is supported, even though it's not openly supported. And this game, in that respect, I just, I yeah, I've, I don't really have any, well, I will have words. We're going to have another hour and 20 minutes at least worth of uh, words to say about it, but um, it's a lot. And this game to play at this time is even without the background and understanding where this game comes from, it doesn't mean that it doesn't speak to the here and now and things that we've all lived through as well. Another fascinating perspective. Thank you very much. Uh, Leah, uh, what was your experience with this game? So I uh, went into my Steam library just to make sure that I never actually played this before uh, the full version was out, and I don't even own it on Steam, so that kind of answers that question. (laughs) I've never really been much of a PC gamer. Uh, I tend to play like a little indie stuff on Steam that doesn't come out on the main consoles. Uh, and episodically, I'm much like um, John and James mentioned, uh, very hesitant sometimes to get into episodic games that have not put out all of their episodes yet. I did not play. I, I had heard of Kentucky Route Zero uh, and it seemed interesting, but I thought, OK, yeah, I'll just wait. And then, of course, there was quite the wait. But when it came out on the consoles, I picked it up and played it pretty much right away after that release on the Switch. Uh, And then I recently, for the podcast, played it again on the PlayStation. Uh, So I've played two versions of the console release, uh, just kind of back to front. Episodic games are just tough for me because I, regardless, I, I don't think it's that I would lose track necessarily. It's that I prefer kind of the the whole experience because I, I feel like the emotion that I get from playing through something and the connection that I have to the characters and the plot is just stronger if I continue to, to push on something and not break it up over seven years or even like a year or two years or whatever. I, I It's just a preference for me. I don't think it's necessarily a problem with the game. But uh, yeah, I the the concept of waiting four years in between the last two episodes seems like torture to me. So I'm kind of glad I didn't attempt to do that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, episodic games, episodic anything really. Like I like I like the concept of there being episodes. I just want them all to be out at the same time so that I can I can um, binge. I guess. But yeah, that's where I am. Cool. Let's start off with a piece of correspondence. From Sage plus Onion Knight from the forum who says, I'm obviously really glad that the people can enjoy Kentucky Route Zero as a full experience, but there's something bittersweet about the fact that no one will be able to experience it like I did over the slow episodic release period. It sounds pretentious to say, but it suited the feel of the game so well for it to be this strange thing that would emerge every so often before folding back away like one of its own theater set-like locations. My experience with it in that respect is admittedly very subjective. I was first interested in the game because it was so in line with my tastes, the nods to modernist literature and magical realism, 
the haunting ambient electronic soundtrack, the fascination with things like tapes and TVs, the warped Americana. That's, uh, that gives a, a good kind of diving off point. We've talked a lot about the kind of extended, you know, multiple act structure and its release periods. I'll say it like to its credit, like acts, uh, the acts one through five, and then especially the interludes in between all, for the most part, play pretty differently from one another. You know, acts one and two are very kind of traditional point and click adventure games in the you know, standard kind of monkey island uh, vein as far as gameplay goes anyway. So there's not a lot of like inventory or anything like that, but um, it is a lot of, you know, click to move and click to examine and and dialogue trees and stuff like that. Whereas things really start to kind of branch off in acts three, four, and five, and then uh, particularly act, act five and the interlude before that, uh, which was called Un Pueblo de Nada, which I, I I find very very interesting. They take place in a kind of a circular fashion, um, where the camera is fixed in a central point in the middle of in uh, the interlude a TV like a local broadcast TV station, and in the final chapter, the final act of the game rather, the center of a town. And the entire the entire act takes place kind of pivoting around that one point, following kind of different actions that characters are taking. And, uh, you know, as you look away, things behind you will move and refresh. And there's always something kind of new to notice as you're looking around this this room or this town. So there's there's a lot of experimentation. There's portions of the game that play out like a text adventure. There is one particular island that you can land on in Act 4 where the dialogue box is split in two and kind of parallel. Uh, a parallel conversation is happening between the two characters, but depending on which dialogue box you choose to advance, you will get the thoughts and memories of each individual character. There's a lot of really interesting experimental stuff like that. And even as early as Act 1, you are navigating a very interesting map that kind of feels like a roadmap um, with your truck. And uh, it, it all feels very... Um, very experimental, very fresh, and like they weren't afraid to really kind of throw everything to the, you know, throw everything on the cutting board that needed to change to tell the type of story that they wanted to tell in any particular moment. So form and functionally, the game was constantly changing, which I found very fresh. Something that uh, that you said that I really thought was interesting there is, uh, so I the the island that you're talking about with the with the uh, text mm-hmm. boxes, I never actually got that. I I made the other choice uh, and went to whatever the other thing is at that point. I don't actually remember the narrative choices that you make are not. I mean, you you're always going to get the same ending. Basically, you are always going to be led to the same kind of conclusion, but. Something that I really that that set this apart for me was that it feels almost more like you are not playing a character because in Mm -hmm. numerous parts you have um, kind of a text box and you'll get a dialogue choice, but not all of the dialogue choices are coming from the same character. So you'll get Mm -hmm. one character saying something and then you'll get, okay a line from Ezra and a line from Conway and a line from Shannon and you pick one of those. So that's the character that's going to be reacting to this. And that's the character we're going to be bouncing off of. So you're almost you're not really playing a character. You're playing kind of the director, which really syncs up well with that. The act and scene 
setup and just mm-hmm. kind of the the overall that the fact that sometimes it does just feel like it feels like a production sometimes it does feel like a, a play and and in places like act 3 with the song in in the roadhouse um or in the bar you know where where the scenery kind of changes and there are costumes that just appear and the ceiling melts off like all of that just really it does feel to me most of the time like you are on sets and i think that's probably mm-hmm. an intentional thing I've been thinking a lot about what role the player plays in a video game. And I used to sort of think, oh, well, a, a player is almost a co-writer on the game mm-hmm. in that, you know, it's an interactive medium. So the player kind of dictates a certain amount of what happens. But that's really not the case in so many ways that you never really have choices that, that allow you to take pen to blank piece of paper and just change what's going to happen next that's not ten- that doesn't tend to be the case and so it's much more you are offered like occasionally a suite of choices and you get to edit the story you want out of it and in this case actually it's almost like you're a lot more like an actor who's sitting down with a script you can't change where the story's going that's not your job your job is to find the motivation and the backstory mm. for the character yeah. and to not choose where the character's going next, but to choose how they come to the realization or how they deal with the realization that that is where they are going next. It's the intention, it's the emotion. The actor's that you secret. You can bring yeah. and you can find the core of the character. Yeah, the 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 example that I was going to give here that uh, that kind of stuck with me is we kind of alluded to this before, but you find out through the course of uh, some conversations and just dialogue options and and, and through the course of the story pretty early on that Conway is an alcoholic, Mm. depending on some of the choices that you make, he can either be a recovering alcoholic or Mm. he can be somebody who has accepted this fate for himself and is just slowly drinking himself to death. And that's that hit pretty hard. And I, you know, and you can also just make random choices, but I don't think most people who are playing this game for with, with the intent of getting the most out of it are are necessarily going to be doing that. I, I I found that the way that I, that I was kind of naturally inclined just by the way that it was set up to have a pretty good idea about who these characters were. And then once I had that idea to kind of make the choices that I thought those characters were would have made if they were following the same path that I kind of had picked out for them or had envisioned for them. And yeah, Conway was was probably the uh, the most strong contender for a character that could go a number of different directions and still get to the same place for me. That's the interesting thing about it is that like, you know, we've played a lot of games recently on Canon Rents in particular with Disco Elysium and Lisa the Painful of games, uh, characters that are recovering addicts or perhaps not recovering addicts, as it were. And the fact that, you know, in those games, it would mechanically reward or punish you for lapsing back into your habits. But in this game, the lapse back into alcoholism is inevitable and it's not even necessarily it's not mechanically rewarded or discouraged like i i think the fact that like in most games because our choices are handled mechanically they are keys to unlock something that we want you know means to an end whereas the kind of non-mechanical value of kentucky route zero's dialogue allows it to function as language you know it allows us to kind of get back to it just being language and prose and allows us to like read 
so much meaning into like the subtle variations and often and like oftentimes they'll pair lines that are similar except for like one word is different and even even things like yes or no choices are meaningfully and abstractly written you know in a oftentimes you have to select your truck to progress to the next scene in the story and when you do so it doesn't just tell you it doesn't ask you do you want to leave yes or no it'll it'll give you a choice like conway has places to go or conway has nowhere to go and it's like that is more meaningfully rich while still presenting you with the same mechanical option the point i want to make about the the choices i mean this is partly uh, my own uh, independent sort of opinion that i've come up with over the course of this but there's also i want to point out a I guess a video essay from one of my friends whose YouTube channel is called uh, Static Canvas, who did kind of a run through uh, sort of description of how the game plays that I used heavily for kind of remembering all of the bits, because as I said before, it's been 18 months since I played it. But I think there's, there's a couple of points in the game where the dialogue choices are sort of very elegantly split out so that it's it's deliberate that you make these dialogue choices and the the game kind of plays into them and it doesn't really matter what you pick it's kind of just you said something before about just sort of vibing with it and i think one of those points is the um the song with johnny and junebug where you pick Mm, the lyrics as uh as the song progresses and it kind of plays them karaoke style on the screen and there are presumably countless different variations of that song that can exist depending on i think each time you get to pick between one of three or four choices and that happens maybe four five six times during the song so it's it's sort of very open-ended and nebulous and the other point is um i can think of specifically is at the very beginning of the game you choose a password for a computer and it's sort of mentioned to you that it doesn't really matter what you choose you'll just sort of figure it out and you basically write this sort of two or three line poem that somehow ends up being the password to get into this guy's computer. So there are there are elements where the the choices feel very sort of deliberately like this is trying to convey a feeling to you, but it also at the same time doesn't really matter. But then the other another side of this that really got me, and this was something that um it came up quite heavily in the the video essay, is Act Four, I think, is quite different from the way that the other acts play in that you do have basically for every event that happens during this trip down the river that you're going on, you can pick two different scenes to watch essentially. Mm. I think you play as Ezra throughout the whole thing or the majority of it. And at each point where you're on this boat going down a river, that's very similar to, uh, to how the Kentucky route zero, the zero kind of works out at each point that people decide we want to stop and we want to go and have a look at this gas station or this restaurant or this bar or check out this cave and at each point i think ezra can decide whether he goes with the other characters to see what happens on land or stays on the boat and does what ends up being some fairly mundane task i think one of them maybe you're not ezra but one of them you're just watching Sharon look at some videotapes and there's another one I think Mm -hmm. where you're playing cards with a couple of the characters and one of the things that I found very interesting about this and again it's not an entirely my own thought because it it came up in this video is that if you look at the list of achievements or trophies for the game the vast majority of them are either very very mundane just basically get to the end of this 
this section of the game, like storyline progression. Some of them are for weird things that you can do, like little scenes that happen if you pick one character instead of another for an event. But there's one for Act 4 where you get a different... Uh, so you get a trophy specifically for playing through the act again. And in my mind, that's kind of the the whoever's decided to write this rather nebulous list of achievements and trophies suggesting that you should probably play this again and see all of the different uh, the different mm-hmm. sides of each story as they go along because it is the act is essentially split up into these two parts that you will only see at maximum one one part of it while you're playing. And there's a point here where the, I am still loath to actually go into the details of this, but Conway's eventual fate, it felt to me when I played it that I had initially done something wrong or made a choice that I could have done differently. And this idea of the game, sort of the developers pushing you saying, you should play this act again and see all of the opposite sides. I so desperately wanted to see a better resolution and to not have what we all know happens happen you just can't there's there's no way out of it by that point the the character's choices the the events that have happened conway is too far down the the path and it's really gutting having this kind of carrot dangled in front of you of maybe you could change it because in a lot of other games this would be the way that you change this and this fate has will have been decided by one binary choice that you made at some point and to have the what essentially ends up the choice in this is not what happens to conway it's one very small line of dialogue where sharon is speaking to one of the other characters afterwards and when she comes back from the event and I think it's Johnny or Ezra asks her what happened to Conway and your choice is I think two dialogue lines that are he's gone and they took him to have that being your choice not what actually happens but your choice of he's gone or they took him man I'm I'm getting melancholy just thinking about it now it's so powerful but so simple at the same time uh we should Mm. add a little bit of context here so uh just to kind of like build out a bit of the story around this so that you know these statements will make sense the the game starts off uh conway is the name of a delivery truck driver making the final delivery for an antique shop that has gone out of business um he is tasked to deliver the final shipment of antique furniture to an address called five dogwood drive that does not appear to be on any modern maps the entire journey is basically him trying to fulfill this final request for the employer that took him in and basically saved his life as uh, as kind of his final act as an employed man in this case but in the first act he ends up having his leg crushed by some falling rocks inside of a mine that kind of sets him on a journey where you know he's you know badly injured throughout that first act and um, much of act two it involves trying to find uh, some you know medical attention so that his leg could be treated. Uh, they eventually do happen across a doctor that is living in a kind of mobile colony of sorts that is transported via giant eagle in and out of the aforementioned museum of dwellings which is kind of a kind of an exhibit of mobile living at night once the museum is closed the giant eagle moves these people's homes back out into the forest where they can live in relative privacy whereas in the day 
their lives are being kind of spectated by tourists. But anyways, they find this this doctor who is able to help Conway, but at a great kind of financial price. The doctor is subsidized by, or his education was subsidized by one of the kind of big pharmaceutical companies. And as such, he has to prescribe their expensive drug to Conway, which, you know, saves his life or saves his leg potentially. But in that point forward, his leg is depicted as kind of a flashing orange and yellow skeleton leg, which is which is very odd. But it's the way the game's way of the game's way of depicting it as being uh, kind of the ghost, a phantom limb, as it were, the ghost of his leg. Because if it were not for the intervention from this doctor, the leg would no longer be with him. But at the same time, he no longer has control of it because he requires this expensive medicine to keep it essentially. And so, you know, it is both a part of him and alien from him as well. Similarly, he his arm becomes a skeleton arm during act four for a similar reason. It just kind of, it represents the lack of ownership of yourself anymore. And the, the, the fact that you're growing deeper and deeper in debt, you know, the, the parts of you that are kind of in a sense promised to someone else are depicted as skeleton parts. And so at various points in the story and particularly coming into its own in the, the interlude in between acts two and three called The Entertainment, which is a very interesting, it's almost like a stage play. It is a stage play, essentially, because you can mm-hmm. uh, look or look behind you and see the audience. It's, it's unclear whether the perspective that you were sitting, it's a first-person perspective in which you can, again, kind of take a 360 look around the room, but unless the action is happening in front of you. It's unclear whether your perspective is as an actor or an audience member or even the director. But you know, it introduces the idea that there is a distillery, you know, the hard times distillery, as they call it, that is staffed by these skeletons. And basically the distillery buys the debts of everyone in town and kind of forces them to quote unquote work off the debt by working in the distillery. And everyone in town kind of just views this as being an inevitability in a way. You know, people either either release their attachment to the material world or they will inevitably be have whatever debts that they do have to the local community bought by the distillery and end up kind of transforming into this growing indentured servitude that will never be truly paid off. For that reason, they're depicted as being fully skeletons. And we see that you know, throughout Act Four, as Conway is conversing with these skeletons and is being rather friendly with them, you know, is having those moments of yeah. of relating to them and just kind of having fun in the way that you do with like fellow office workers. I don't get the sense that he was taken against his will um, because no. he, he seems to have embraced that fate. And I don't even know if it's necessarily that he's given up on himself either. You know, I think that. There's a certain sense of like personal pride and honor that he takes in in fulfilling mm-hmm. his debts, even if the debts are kind of BS and just meant to keep him eternally enslaved. But I think he kind of takes a sense of like purpose because he he struggles with purposelessness throughout the journey. 
especially since his employer is closing down and he's going to be out of a job soon. But I think for some reason, he finds this distillery job, this eternal job, this kind of hell type of scenario as being at least some kind of a purpose that he can fulfill. When he and Shannon are kind of touring the facilities before he like takes that that final drink mm-hmm. that just seals the deal, he does seem like he's kind of weighing his options there. Like he he does a lot of thinking about the fact that, well, you know, he's he's been a truck driver for a long time. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't really have anything tying him back anymore because his employer is not only going out of business, she's also dying, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And going through dementia as well, which can yes. be really difficult to kind of accompany somebody through. And they were very close. So, I mean, that's that's something that obviously has caused him a lot of pain. And I, I think that I think there is a little bit of him giving up in there. I, I don't think it's completely that. But I, I, I think that he could go back to Lynette and, you know, stay with her until the end and, you know, try to try to be there for her. But he in the end, you know, is he decides that this is pretty much what he what he wants and he he doesn't even just these like kind of smaller ties that he has or weak ties or whatever they are he's willing to cut them off um because i think he has a little bit given up on what else he can do when that whole thing inevitably comes to its conclusion i don't i don't think he wants to be there for that 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 final scene with Conway when he's going down the river, I think you nailed it there with the Greek mythology thing, because, you know, the river Styx is supposed to be the uh, kind of the boundary between um, this world and or their world and, and the afterlife and the underworld. The fact that he disappears down that rather than being on one side or the other, it, it, it really tied in well to the slowly dissolving into a skeleton that he was doing and you know the the fact that we don't really know that these people are dead because other people can see them or nothing is in this uh, particular in this particular scenario i don't think anything is really alive or really dead except for maybe the people who are buried in the graveyard at the house at the very beginning i think the thing that cuts me up about it is i tend to like a sense of resolution or finality um and you know that's not to say that you know I absolutely have to have every thread uh, covered and every question answered in in media, but not not at all. But it, it sort of weighs on my mind, bothers me a little bit that this this thing with Conway, he basically gets written out of the story in a way that feels very. I mean, it's sort of ceremonious, but also unceremonious at the same time. Where mm-hmm. he essentially he doesn't he starts the game being your point of view control character and for me i know it changes and it's different in different um acts and you see lots of things from different perspectives but when you play through that first act you feel like conway is your point of view character and the the kind of the mission the objective of the game is conway trying to fulfill his delivery of his antiques to uh the property on is it uh dogwood drive yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, which you eventually get to, but Conway never makes it. Conway doesn't get through the story. Conway disappears out of it in the middle and never really gets a chance to say goodbye to any of the other characters, including his beloved dog, or what I assume is his beloved dog. It was certainly my beloved dog when I was playing from a point of view Conway mm-hmm. perspective. And nobody afterwards ever even really mentions it very much or seems to be 
bothered by it or upset by it or sort of melancholy about the fact that oh it's, it's a shame he wasn't here when we got to dogwood drive finally and managed to fulfill what his you know his destiny was supposed to be during this so it's a very realistic feeling i think of how things do happen in real life things don't have proper resolutions and things don't come to pass in the way that you plan them to but seeing it here sort of portrayed so starkly and so brutally was a real moment for me. Let's talk about the rest of that supporting cast. We've already kind of mentioned a few of them quite a few times already, but uh, the other kind of major players in the story are Shannon, who we meet in the first act of the game. Uh, she's one of the first companions that we pick up along the way. An electronics repair woman whose parents were killed in a mining accident in town. Yeah, she's very handy with electronics. She's very practical compared to everyone else in the story. Ezra is a child that we meet in Act 2, I believe. He is an orphan child who we get a few details about his abandonment later on, but it's still there's still a lot that is kind of left up in the air. Uh, we never really find out that much about his parents. You know, for the most part, he is pretty self-sufficient. Ezra is, you know, great friends with an eagle, a giant eagle named Julian, who, uh, like we already mentioned, transports the houses in and out of the museum of dwellings out to the forest uh, every day and every night and uh, kind of serves as Ezra's best friend. But Ezra is a very, uh, very kind of sweet and innocent child, very curious uh, very kind of well-mannered, um, dresses in a suit as well, which is kind of funny. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's he's just kind of along for the journey and provides that that child's perspective. And then the uh, the last kind of major players, I guess there are the uh, the the crew of the boat. But the the next ones I wanted to mention are uh, Johnny and Junebug, which are traveling musicians that you kind of slowly or maybe immediately, I don't know, maybe I was just slow to piece it together, that they are robot automatons that used to work in the power company that have since broken away from that employment and are not necessarily on the run, but they're just on the road perpetually. And you get the sense that as they travel from place to place, as they write more of their music, they begin to kind of shed more and more of their robotic instinct or lack thereof rather and uh, pick up more individual personality and um you know by the end of the game they are talking uh, about you know starting a family and about you know i mean they act more human by the end of the story than a lot of the human characters do so very interesting pair those junebug to me was the the counterpoint to conway Ooh. where Conway has tried to live his life and has made so many mistakes and, and holds a lot of guilt and shame for that to the point where he's almost, in my mind, my version of Conway at least, just wants the routine and the purpose, that brainless, mindless job that he is bound to and forced to almost would give him. Whereas Junebug started working for this company and in finding out the way they work and the way they treat people has started to become awakened and has decided to reject all of that in favor of a life where nothing is certain and where you just go about in their case making music and hoping to find meaning through 
that they they've accepted that there's no meaning to be found from the mundane life that they were supposed to be born into and and held to um so yeah just a complete counterpoint to conway's journey uh, in my mind at least i don't think i realized right away that they were robots either if it makes you feel any better right? I, yeah, I didn't no <laughs> yeah, i definitely didn't. Yeah. although you do hear the kind of whirring of servos as they walk yeah. around and stuff like that <laughs> Let's back up a little bit. Uh, we've kind of talked about our impressions kind of across the course of the adventure. And let's spend just kind of a brief time in each of the different acts and see what we kind of come away with. Uh, major themes and symbols and takeaways, uh, starting in Act 1. Um, Act 1 has a, a a breathtaking opening, I would say. It's one of the most memorable and stunning locations that I've ever like been to in a video game. Like this is, you know, the, the first shots of Kentucky route zero are, I mean, pretty unrivaled as far as like first shots in video games go, in my opinion, but you start off at this place called Equus oils. That is a, um, kind of a, uh, a futurist, uh, style gas station. That's kind of in the middle of this County in Kentucky. It's uh, it has this enormous kind of Art Deco stylized horse head behind the station, serving as its kind of major major landmark, major decoration. Uh, it, it cuts a very distinct silhouette. While you're there, you interact with the gas station owner. He sends you into the basement, and you realize that the entire uh, the entire structure of the basement is shaped like the body of a horse. You know, therefore, kind of completing the structure of a giant horse that is, you know, most of the way buried. And then, the, you know, spoiler alert: the end of the game is two horses being buried. It, there's there's a lot of ways that the game kind of forms a very circular narrative. And there's some there's some cards that it plays here that end up kind of paying off at the very very end of Act Five or rather being set up at the very end of Act 5 if you want to take things in the weird kind of circular chronology of the adventure here. I I guess, you know, we're not going to drill deep into every particular scene, but I think Equus Oils cuts a very strong impression. It doesn't really carry through that you have kind of the adventure gamey elements that show up kind of to start with here. Uh, and by that, I mean, you, when you first do go down into the the basement, you meet three characters who then after you meet these characters, and this is something else I don't think I immediately picked up on the first time I played it, that these characters are actually the same characters all the way through and continue showing up uh, in, in different kind of places. That's right. These are the bed quilt ramblers, this kind of Greek yes. chorus that follows the adventure throughout. So it's uh, Emily, Ben, and Bob. Um, I yeah, I didn't. I don't think I made that connection to them as as the chorus, but uh, but they do show up in other places, such as in uh, the TV studio uh, and in uh, the art exhibit uh, and a couple of other places. But um, you kind of go down there, and they're they're playing what appears to be some kind of D and D because they've lost their uh, their twenty their glowing twenty sided die, and you have to turn off the lights in order to see where it is, uh, and then when you come back, they're gone. So. Um, woo ghosts but uh, you, you don't see stuff quite like that sort of puzzle going forward um, but I, I kind of thought it was a fun way to introduce those characters and um, I, I enjoy that they do come back it's certainly great that it immediately kicks off with this uh, sort of nonsensical ethereal dream logic that the game then mm. 
it continues with as you go on and on and on. I mean, this is literally the second scene. You spend a few minutes talking to the guy outside and then go down into the basement of the uh, the fuel station and, and all of this happens. And then immediately afterwards, when you come back, you sort of just write a poem and it turns out to be the password for the computer. And then when you're on the computer, you can look at some emails that reference another character who you end up meeting later in person, I think in their reference multiple times during. So the whole game immediately from the get-go has this sort of weird, on one hand, sort of completely nonsensical uh, dream logic way of doing things. But on the other hand is it really incestuous with how how often you end up bumping into these characters that seem really throwaway at the uh, at the offset it's a really strong opening it really really strong first first scene uh, i think just in terms of letting you know what the game's going to be but also putting you on edge a little bit of not knowing what to expect the station owner directs you to the zero which will take you to dogwood drive and that becomes your your objective to find the zero and uh, what they do i i love this the game makes excellent use of kind of text and visual effects throughout the game, but any time that the zero is mentioned, there's this kind of weird, kind of hazy moving texture that filters over the words. And, you know, all of the text in this game is very, very thin, you know, thin character lines. And so you can barely see, you know, the movement of these kind of cloudy texture over the word zero. But but it does give it a sense that just saying the word kind of breaks reality in a way. It reminds me a lot yeah. of of Alan Wake. And any time that they would mention Mr. Scratch, they would overlay that name with the sound of like radio static. And so you never mm. heard the name. It would just be in the subtitles or whatever. But there's a sense that like there are some words that have like an inherent power that are forbidden by kind of the natural order. Uh, which you know I think puts it in a very a very interesting light. Uh, you end up taking to the highway, and uh, this is another great, like, really kind of brilliant segment where you could basically just kind of like freely roam this giant map of this Kentucky county, and most of the roads are just kind of empty. You can turn down the highways and the byways and the little side roads and the alleyways, and it doesn't make a ton of sense because you know you started the game off at a at a petrol station, and so you have the the sense that the truck needs gas, but then you can just kind of drive around this giant map yeah. to your heart's content without, you know, ever having to think about fuel uh, again throughout the entire game. But um, I, I think as a as a, a a way to kind of hide interesting details, it's a really brilliant thing because you know there are landmarks that you can happen across, but they won't become visible until you're pretty close to them, and the roads are not you know city grids; they are kind of winding and interlocking with one another and going off in weird angles. And, you know, there's areas where they're very dense and areas where they're very sparse. And uh, they're at such kind of like uh, such difficult angles to, uh, to to travel meticulously that it's kind of the, the where's Waldo or where's Wally approach of like, you know, nothing is ever in a grid. And so you can't just kind of like scan from left to right to make sure that you see everything. You know, you get the sense you're not supposed to see everything. You're supposed to explore and then happen upon something interesting. And then that is your story. And so there's there's all sorts of things you can... Uh, most of them are just like maybe text boxes that will pop up while you're still in the map screen. 
sometimes with the ambient noise of whatever it is that you're parked next to. Uh, sometimes they are actual scenes that you can get out of the truck and explore. But uh, yeah, for the most part, you're just kind of cruising around, finding interesting things uh, until you end up following the directions that will take you to the Marquez farmhouse where you meet um, Weaver Marquez, who's another reoccurring character throughout the game who may be a ghost. <laughs> Hard to say. But she's uh, she's always very mysterious and kind of creepy whenever she does kind of pop up at various points throughout the game. Uh, later on, she's a she does these weird uh, pirate cable broadcasts and interrupts the local public access station, always appearing on TVs whenever the characters seem to need the direction, repeating the same phrase over and over again inaudibly. Uh, anyways, the, some some weird stuff in there. You eventually meet up with Shannon and explore the Elkhorn Mine, which was another real highlight going back to it this time around for me because this mine, being kind of a company town, the the workers were paid in company dollars so that they could exchange at the company store. Obviously, you know, this theme of worker exploitation, but you also got the sense that it cost the workers money to run the electronics inside of the mine, including the lights, including the air filtration. And there wasn't enough power being funneled into the mine for everything to be on all at once. And so to turn something on, you had to turn something else off. And uh, these these rules were still you know, true even all these years later when you went back to this now far abandoned mine to explore it yourself. And uh, at various points, you could turn off the lamp on your cart and uh, something else could be turned on in that case, whether it's a lamp somewhere else or a uh, record player at one point, you can hear some uh, music or recording or something. And then uh, one of my favorite things is that if you, if you move through the mine with your light off, then you have uh, the, the mine cart that you're on is being powered by this kind of this wire up above with a with an arm that kind of connects with it like a bumper car. There's uh, sparks that will shoot off of it, uh, just kind of illuminating the immediate area. And if you basically just drive around that mine with the lights off, then at various points you'll see like the shadows of the workers of the mine pop up for you know a frame here and there in the the brief little light of a spark kind of shooting off of the power line and. Uh, that that sense of being surrounded by ghosts, and you can see quite a few of them in uh, various parts of the mine, uh, was both kind of creepy and just very. I I just love it. Like that's that's the kind of thing mm. that I want yeah. to see more of in games. I mean, that comes back at the end as well during uh, during Emily's song. You know, as you see mm -hmm. characters popping up who are not physical people as as everybody else as kind of the main characters are but you're it's just full by the end so definitely a theme at the end of the act you return to the marquez farmhouse and tune a television to a specific station that causes the barn behind the farmhouse to disappear and change into the tunnel entrance to the kentucky route zero uh, which is a very strange scene but beautiful way to end the episode i end the act rather I, I find this entire act to be like nothing but bangers from beginning to end it's um 
I, I mean, this this was the only bit of Kentucky Route Zero for a little bit, and just you know, it, it set my imagination ablaze with all the directions this could go. I I, I really love Act One; it's pretty fantastic. Mm, it's relatively short yeah, and sweet, and it doesn't get mm-hmm. too complicated yet. You've only got a couple of characters that you really need to be keeping track of. Yeah, although the objectives in it can be sort of dashed through quite quickly. As you mentioned, you do have this huge map that you can drive around the majority of and find all these little bits of flavor text and and extra little scenes that you can sink into. So, yeah, for for the opening of this, I know it goes to some wild places and it, I think, remains very strong all the way through. But as a an opening act for anything like this, it's it really sets a high bar. Considering the kind of protracted schedule that that it that the releases were on, it, I find it really impressive that so many things were set up in the first episode yeah. or in the first act that were that were for the most part carried through in subsequent acts pretty well. Before getting to Act Two, the team released a short standalone uh, vignette called "Limits and Demonstrations." And uh, they'll continue to do this throughout the release of the series that in between the acts, they'll have these little kind of interludes, as it were. It's something that's completely different, oftentimes playing completely different than the the main chapters. They can be viewed as kind of optional extra reading. They were standalone downloads that you would have to get from the Cardboard Computer website back during the time at which these games were being released com- contemporaneously, but at the uh, launch of Act Five and the kind of rebundling of everything together into a kind of slicker software package. Overall, they were kind of incorporated into that and um, made pretty easily selectable in the main menu. Uh, so, limits and demonstrations is basically kind of a walkthrough of an art exhibit uh, that was created by, uh, or actually a com- compilation of works. Lula Chamberlain, who is one of the the big characters uh, throughout the rest of the game that you'll keep running into. The idea is that like some of her works were too big and expensive and ambitious to be uh, supported by various museums, and so you know this exhibit uh, kind of collected the the pieces that weren't able to be demonstrated elsewhere. It's interesting. I, I didn't take away like a ton a ton from this uh, as opposed to some of the other interludes later on but it's a interesting little experiment act two begins in a place called the bureau of reclaimed spaces and we'll find a reoccurring theme throughout this act in particular is the idea of displacement and the idea of basically having your your home taken from you of housing being temporary it's uh, the Bureau of Reclaimed Spaces is this um, this place that is in charge of of taking abandoned buildings, buildings that no longer serve their original purpose, and giving them a new purpose, something that is needed by the community. But uh, oftentimes, it does so by kind of moving functions, these kind of bureaucratic functions, into these very very interesting old churches, which are based on uh, a handful of real churches that are you know, real places in real life that are kind of built in this this brutalist style of architecture. Um, there's some very grand, high concrete walls and and really kind of interesting, unique brickwork. You know, there's a lot of discussion of 
hermit crabs and the kind of transient housing that uh, that they utilize and the idea of kind of spaces being filled and abandoned and filled again by something else. And my big takeaway from the the Bureau of Reclaimed Spaces, other than the floor that is just full of bears that are walking around an <laughs> office and will just stop and stare at you as you walk through. My favorite thing is if you moved the far side of one of the floors, uh, you'll see you know this this building used to be an old church, and there's this giant pipe organ that's built into the wall. And if you walk over to you know the side you know closest to the pipe organ, then the organist will start playing this song, this kind of really slow atmospheric song. Sounds kind of like uh, Laura Palmer's theme from Twin Peaks, uh, but it's um, you know just very slow atmospheric. It creates this just incredible atmosphere for this weird, bizarre, bureaucratic space that is just so unlike anything we'd encountered to that point. Uh, Any takeaways from the Bureau of Reclaimed Spaces? I think it tries a little too hard in the section where you have to go in between like three different people Mm. to get all of the forms that you need in order to, to, I don't even remember what it is you're doing at that point, but um, in order to uh, get your paperwork completed, like I get it. Yes. Bureaucracy sucks. There's a lot of paperwork that you have to do and it never makes any sense. But I, that to me, there, there are a few places. um, And this is one of the few negative things I will say about this game. There are a few places where I feel like the pacing was not, quite what I wanted. And this is one of them. There's some there's some really cool stuff in the Bureau of Reclaim Spaces, but like that particular section, it just, I don't know, it didn't stick with me. Bears, though. I did like the bears. <laughs> From there, we move on to the St. Thomas Church, which is again built into this enormous church that is, um, you know, turned into kind of a, a uh, filing spot for the mini papers of this bureaucracy. Uh, we move into the Museum of Dwellings, which this is the section I was thinking of. It takes another very, very interesting turn uh, with the way that the story is told. We see this uh, come back once again later, that as you're walking around the Museum of Dwellings, you are no longer in the moment of actual exploration, that you are viewing the scene through recorded um, security tapes that are being (laughs) reviewed by the security guards the next day as they're commenting on the things that the characters are doing. So you're still pointing and clicking to get the characters to move around and investigate things, but you don't actually hear the characters speak. You hear the security guards the next day comment upon the actions of these weird, mysterious strangers the previous night. So yeah, again, really really interesting way of telling the story of taking a fairly straightforward section and making it a lot more interesting than it could have been otherwise. So I, I love this, this type of experimentation. This is also where we pick up Ezra, isn't it? It is. Yes. I love this place. I think the, the notion that as you, as we've said, that these people's way of living, their, their, their little houses are, have become something to be marketed as a curiosity to others. Their houses are brought into this space as a museum during the day and then are taken out back into the forest at night. You mentioned something, Ryan, where it's like they, they get their privacy. It's like, well, okay, but at night the museum's shut down. They would have privacy there. Yeah. But because either the people themselves want their houses put back where they should be or just to give Julian something to do, 
it's it speaks in so many levels to the ridiculousness of the world of employment that you would need to essentially employ whether monetarily or just in terms of uh, performing the act a giant eagle to move a bunch of houses into a museum so people can go and look at those houses that they could look at in situ if they wanted but they need to come to the museum those people's houses have to be there during the day and then in order to give them privacy they would otherwise have in the museum or return them to where they should be, Julian again has to take them back. It's just the futility of having that sort of task to do for what for whatever reason. I don't know exactly the reason, but nonetheless, this is the situation we've got set up, all in order to serve a notion that because these dwellings are interesting enough that people would come to a museum for them, they therefore have worth, and it's worth doing all of this for that end is it's so bizarre, but such an interesting sequence. And you say, made even more interesting by the way it's told to you, because it puts you off initially when you think you're controlling a person walking around, but then the, what you're hearing doesn't fit with that quite until you realize what's going mm. on. Uh, from there, Julian moves us into the forest as we are in pursuit of some sort of a doctor to help to help Conroy, uh, Conway's. Uh, the forest is... Again, really beautifully rendered. It's uh, rendered in a very interesting way, making use of a, an illusion of parallax scrolling mm-hmm. that's actually based on a painting that is, uh, its name is in French, so apologies, but uh, Le Blanc saying, I think, perhaps. <laughs> I, I've never been great on my French, but um, it's this idea of, you know, you're in this forest, there are these vertical lines of the trees but some of the vertical lines allow you to see through the objects that should be in between them in the background. And so maybe it's not as evocative for me to describe it, but it's, uh, it's really interesting to see the characters kind of move through this, uh, this weird, nonsensical, nonsensically parallaxing space. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it gives it a, a sense of movement that you, you haven't seen any of really in, in the game up until this point. Yeah. It's really, really striking. Yeah, and you you go to the doctor who, as he kind of puts you under, you know, as you are kind of fading out, he describes the terms of the the death that you'll be in, uh, which is another kind of a cruel joke on the American medical system and the the medical debt that people can find themselves basically enslaved to, and another way that you know society really kind of like sinks its claws in those who are uh, less economically advantaged. And we see this kind of firsthand through the way that, uh, you know, Conway has to be treated, but uh, this is the only real choice that he has. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of played like almost the doctor is telling him as he's going under so that he doesn't have a choice. But even if this mm-hmm. was being told to him beforehand, he doesn't have a choice. He needs his leg fixed. You know, th- this yeah. is a matter of life and death. And so he has no option. The only option is the one in front of him, and that one is going to have ramifications that he is are unavoidable or inevitable, and it just sets up this uh, this the whole rest of the game as far as Conway's story is concerned. It, it's an it's just a march towards inevitability. There's there's literally nothing you can do. The next interlude is called the Entertainment in between Acts two and three, in which uh, we mentioned earlier it is a stage play that you are viewing from the first person from a perspective of either the an actor, a audience member, a director, it's really hard to tell based on where you are in the room. Um, but you can kind of look in front of you and watch the dialogue between bar patrons and the bartender. You can look to the right where another table is occupied by a couple of other actors that are having 
their own conversation, but eventually kind of get involved in the conversation that the characters are having at the bar. And you can even look behind you to see the audience. And most interestingly, as you look at the audience, you'll see excerpts of negative reviews of this particular play uh, from presumably the next morning's newspaper or something like that. So a really interesting experiment in kind of form and function um, as far as that goes. And it kind of sets up one of the locations from the next chapter and concludes with this introduction of the distillery in a way that is buying up the people's debts, forcing them inevitably into this uh, permanent indentured, indentured situation. It's at one point when you uh, you turn around, you see this huge, um, yeah, uh, the <laughs> orange and yellow uh, sort of electric looking skeleton right in front of you, and it's almost like a jump scare because at that point yeah. you've, be, I mean, this this play it's worth pointing out. This goes on for a long time. This thing is like forty fifty minutes long if you just sit there watching the dialogue go through, and inevitably you're kind of glancing around, you're looking at the audience behind you. There's a huge. Um, exit sign on the wall behind which is a little bit tantalizing the idea that you can you can sort of <laughs> look at this exit button but you can't actually do anything you've got no agency which i think um i think might be sort of implying that you're not actually an audience member that you're either part of the play uh, you know as an actor or a director and you can't just get up and leave in the middle of it but it's yeah it's it's certainly a bold choice to to try and get you to sit there to watch this sort of drama between family members going on and then the uh the guy who owns the bar is it is it here or am i getting mixed up where he's talking about the fact that johnny and junebug are basically due to come along as well they, they're talking yeah, he about does mention i think them. they get mentioned yeah, yeah so, they're running late so it's sort of in that respect it's sort of semi-implied that it might end up being the same evening that you end up playing later where they go to the bar mm-hmm. but i think it is intended to be yeah because they because because of what happens when the um when the distillery employees are basically given these people and take them away that's why the bar's empty when Johnny and Junebug and everybody else gets mm. there because he's effectively sold these people in order to get the money that he needs to continue running his bar and that's grim and this is where we get into one of my kind of criticisms of the game as a whole is that like i think the first two acts and even act 3 do a really good job of being such kind of visual works of art and being like rather subtle with what they're lying down and uh, letting the atmosphere and the implied meaning behind kind of brief things that the characters will say. You know, there are some talkative characters, certainly, but I think when we get to act four and we can start to see hints of it in here, I think it does become a bit overwritten. Obviously, the game is heavily inspired by, by theater. And you know stage plays, and I think that the yeah. the creators of the game really wanted to to write something in the style of a stage play, and that is very dialogue heavy. But I, I just think that like in the context of a video game where you have to consider the pacing of the medium and the fact that they had already completed three acts of really successfully communicating really complex emotional ideas with you know relatively s- small amounts of dialogue compared to most point and click adventure games like the fact that act four and this interlude became so 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 dialogue heavy i think was uh, i don't know kind of a mistake and i i found myself getting bored in a way that i hadn't been before even though i really 
like the way that these are written that I find the writing to be very captivating, but it's just, I don't know. It's just too much for my, uh, for my Game Boy adult mind. <laughs> no, I, th- I think that's entirely fair. You know, there's conversation to be had in Acts 1 and 2, but you also have periods of, of quietness where you're moving around in between times mm-hmm. that allow you to process those conversations, whereas this, it feels like you need to progress the conversations to progress the sequence mm-hmm. and an Act 4 as well. Yes, I want to go off the boat and explore and talk to people, but talking to people is also how I'm going to progress. And so it ends up being this back-to-back conversation, 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 and not really much time in between just to decompress and process what it is you've just heard and taken in by moving through the space and experiencing the space separately, which is a different experience. Um, Moving into Act 3, the truck breaks down on the side of a road in a kind of a reference to uh, Waiting for Godot this lone tree in the middle of the dark highway in which the characters are kind of stuck for a time until they catch the attention of a passing couple on a motorcycle. This is Johnny and Junebug, who we've introduced before, the robotic automaton turned punk musicians that end up taking them to their, uh, their gig at the lower depths. We get a sense that, you know, they are doing what they can to make some money to scrape by. Uh, They're getting bar gigs, but really they'll only get paid if they bring in some patrons to to watch them. And, you know, even when they get there, you know, Ezra isn't old enough to drink. Uh, Conway is still trying to, you know, be sober at that point. So you don't get the sense that the bartender is making a big tab anyways. But, uh, you know, he honors their arrangement and um, we get this this beautiful sequence of you know, I don't even necessarily like the song that much <laughs> on its own. Um, the the vocal performance is very unusual. The um, the kind of synthesized new wave type of uh, music is in the background is very very kind of odd. Uh, but it's I think paired with the the interactivity of picking the song lines and the frankly just very beautiful way that the scene kind of changes and distorts to accompany the the increasing tension or the increasing drama of the song as it progresses just makes this scene one of the real standouts from the entire package in my opinion yeah it's very striking yeah i i agree if i break down each of the components maybe they don't not they don't work but but yeah it's it's the gestalt of the thing it's it's the overall that that really uh that really hits you and sticks with you and i think that is the the synthesized music whether it works on its own and and the lyrics obviously you're kind of picking and choosing and feeling your way so to some degree you're responsible for how you feel about those uh but it's it's visually striking and i think that works with the other components really really well Uh, you find your way to a room called the hall of the mountain king uh, this is going back again to Colossal Cave Adventure, where you you meet these characters who are living in this cave, who have constructed this enormous computer that they call Xanadu that is running a simulation that is supposed to simulate the experience of the creators basically creating the game and placing it where it is. But the simulation became so advanced through their perpetual coding of it as well as kind of a natural natural processes that have bestowed it a kind of life outside of their programming uh, that it 
is seen as kind of a perfect oracle in a way. You know, there's this cave moss that grows on the motherboards and the the board the circuit boards heat up so much that it burns the moss and it leaves behind this residue which kind of forms new connections on the circuit boards almost like the almost like the neurons in our brain and so there's this idea that like nature is another force that you know like the programmers are working to program this machine and it can be used to essentially like simulate the entire like natural world and can be used to like see the future and the present time and it's a it's an interesting little uh experiment yeah it's uh it's it's a really cool idea because obviously the, the notion of computers that behave more like organisms is something that is explored both in a, sar- a software and a hardware uh form but not in a way that it kind of organically grows in, in this way. Mm-hmm. This is very much a, 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 almost a symbiosis between what the the uh, people creating the computer intended and then what has happened to it in this space. And again, speaks to a theme that we've touched on of this. A space is defined by what goes on there and the people that are there, and the people are also defined by that space and are impacted by that space as well. So it's it, it's a real nice sort of crystallization of that, where you've got this thing that that shouldn't be naturally occurring, but ha- nature has started to reclaim. This text adventure game is having some problems. Uh, you go and see these distillery workers who are just on the other side of this uh, this divide, this kind of muddy tunnel that you have to crawl through and you end up emerging in a graveyard, which is right next to the distillery. You actually play the scene twice as uh, from different points of view. The first time around as Ezra, Junebug, and Johnny, as they are just kind of like hanging out in the graveyard, uh, which has some kind of funny details. You're controlling Ezra as he goes around and reads the various gravestones. Um, the second time you end up going through the scene, you get to play as uh, Shannon and Conway as they are. They inadvertently kind of enter the distillery and get a tour of the underground facility, and uh, and Conway ends up kind of signing over his his soul, as it were. But uh, the distillery members uh, give him the information that they need to be able to kind of clear off the computer and and continue the journey into the simulation. There's kind of an interesting wrinkle here in that you first see this. Uh, scene through the perspective of uh, the Johnny and Junebug and Ezra mm-hmm. and all you really see of um, what happens with uh, Conway and Shannon is that they go inside this church and I think you mentioned a lot about sort of religious symbolism I believe they sit mm-hmm. down on a an old pew which then sinks into the ground and like descends into this uh, this distillery with the river in it as well so it's very very much sort of like religious imagery then uh, descending into the unknown below. But um, the point I was trying to make is that the first time you see this scene, basically from the other character's point of view, uh, Conway and Shannon come back up from the distillery and it's obvious that something bad's happened, but they don't really, they don't talk mm-hmm. about it. I think it's mentioned that they don't want to talk about it and that they've accomplished uh, what they needed to do with the uh, the computer chips or the, the moss or whatever it was they were trying to work out. And it would be at this point, because we're in this Act 3, which I believe has gone on for a pretty long time. I think Act 3 is possibly the longest one. It's broken into multiple, multiple scenes. I think there's like 11 or 12 of them in total, uh, compared to maybe four or five in 
in in Act One or possibly a little bit more. But um, it, it would be a very obvious natural thing to do for the game to leave what happens in the distillery as a cliffhanger and not pick it up until the fourth act, which I'm really glad that they don't do because it, it kind of feels like there's just like one or two little intermediate scenes between you finding out that something has gone wrong and then actually finding out what it is. But I can't imagine the idea where if they'd left this until act four, that you might've had to sit here wondering what happened in the, you know, in the church that went wrong with them for two plus years waiting for that resolution. (laughs) The next interlude is called Here and There Along the Echo, which is an actual real phone number that you can call um, and you can play the game on your phone, I believe. At least it was at the time of time that it was produced. I don't know if it is still an you active s- number. You still can. I did it okay. today. <laughs> that's Because I didn't know that you could actually call that phone number. And I was like, oh, I wonder if that still works. It does. But uh, for the purpose of bundling this all into a, uh, a singular piece of software, they do give you a virtual phone, which you can use to kind of simulate, um, simulate this phone call as well. And it's kind of a, a dialogue tree that uh, you can, you know, hit various buttons to hear different types of information. And um, I, it's very well presented. I don't know if I have a ton to say about it. Uh, I guess, Leah, you, you played through it again today. Uh, any big takeaways from here and there along the echo? Not really. I think this is the one that is probably the least plot pivotal. Uh, There's a lot of kind of fun and interesting stuff in it. Uh, And if you play the version that is with the the kind of virtual phone, then you can find out that I guess it probably depends on how much you actually do of it. But uh, you can find out that it is the um, the the three characters who have been following you along. Um, It's it's they are the ones who are presumably doing the, the whole phone tree. Emily and Bob and uh, Bill? Ben. No, ben. ben. Gosh, <laughs> um, I think we've all messed that up now. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's the three of them who are uh, who are going through the uh, the phone tree. If you do it in the in the software version, but yeah, it works perfectly well if you do it uh, if you do it on your your own phone, uh, which which I thought was a nice touch. That's very cool. It's kind of laid yeah. out like a tourism board for the Echo, yeah. which is the setting and location of the next act of the game. That uh, functions very similar to the zero. You know, I'm not sure like why we really needed both of them, but it does kind of it, it gives you a little bit less control. There's that idea that the river is kind of pulling you along. You spend most of the act on the mucky mammoth, which is a kind of a tugboat with a animatronic woolly mammoth on the back of it, which is another odd, uh, very striking opening shot of the mammoth kind of, you know, roaring as it does. And then as it continues to move, it becomes more and more obvious that it's a machine instead of an actual mammoth, but an unexpected opening. And then throughout the chapter, uh, throughout the act, rather, you are given various choices, almost every scene between either going ashore, having some sort of an adventure on land at these various places you can stop or staying on the ship. I, I kind of like that as an idea. I kind of wanted it to be like you can go ashore and have, you know, visually diverse adventures or you can choose to stay on the ship and become like really closely intimately acquainted with the, you know, thoughts and feelings of the characters and experience some of those more kind of like intimate mundane uh, horror type of experiences, you know, they kind of set up like a haunted VHS player and you know some interesting setups, but 
pretty much across the board, uniformly, I found the stuff on the boat to be pretty boring and to not really end up going anywhere that interesting, unfortunately. And one of them is literally nothing happens. Like if you choose to spend time with like the dogs rather than like going ashore and doing whatever adventure it uh it sets out for you the dogs just like sit there silently and look at each other for a few seconds and then the scene ends it's like oh okay i guess i made the wrong choice (laughs) but yeah overall i find this I, i played this twice again in my recent playthrough and i remember it being a major sticking point for me in the first playthrough and I think at that point, like life was very busy. I was, you know, I would oftentimes like find myself kind of falling asleep while playing video games just because sleep schedule and grad school and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, you know what, that, yeah. that was probably where I was back then. Uh, I'm, ex- I'm excited to experience it afresh now that I'm a little bit older. I don't, you know, deal with those same problems uh, anymore just because my life is kind of in a better place. Uh, but uh, yeah, I found myself again, playing through it again and getting really kind of bored and tired and it kind of putting me to sleep in a couple places. And I was really disappointed to still have that experience with it. Playing it through again, again, uh, to get the alternate scenes that I didn't see before, I found that like uniformly across the board, the ones that I, the ones where you're actually going on to the, into the world were far, far more interesting. And some of these were really terrific mm-hmm. scenes. Like I love the gas station scene. I love the, um, you know, gathering mushrooms and having that kind of split conversation. Uh, even the, the scenes, uh, checking your messages on the telephone were really, um, really evocative. And I, you know, I think it's kind of too bad that they give you the opportunity to have quite a boring episode for most of it. Mm. Like, even years apart, my opinion not really changing on that, but but there is some really good stuff in here. Uh, you just have to make the right choices. Yeah, it's a really odd one. I, I I feel like if on the first option it gave you the choice to stay on the boat and then gave you a sequence where you realised that staying on the boat was exactly as boring as it sounded, then you wouldn't need the choice anymore. But it continues to give the choice, and I I, I never felt. Exactly as you've just said, Ryan, sorry to reiterate, I never felt that I got enough from being on the boat to warrant ever having done it. I kind of like the VHS tapes one. Um, That one I did pick and uh, I I thought it was kind of interesting. But by and large, I also agree. I'm actually kind of curious about that because I also both like years ago and then in my most recent playthrough, like that was the one there. I was like, oh, I have to see this because if anything creepy and weird is going to be hidden in this world it's going to be on these weird discarded vhs tapes like (laughs) but like even going through recently i didn't find anything that was that interesting to me and so maybe i just didn't pick the right tapes like oh i i'm very curious like what was your experience with it like what did you what did you come away with from that room i think it was more a it was less a a situation of i have creepy experiences with these and more like almost like the um the phone call before the um mm. the um uh, tourism interlude it, it was more of a these are the things that people leave behind and therefore that is why mm, the yeah, world is yeah. like this or these are just kind of representatives of the world it, it, again i i think that i just liked 
there are a lot of places where there are things that happen to the characters. And I appreciated that there were also a, just a scattering of flavor stuff that kind of fills out the world a little bit more. Um, I think if there had been too much of that, I it probably would have been overwhelming to me or underwhelming, I guess, as the case may be. But uh, in this case, I, I thought it was kind of nice. Cool, cool. Uh, one of my favorite moments in this episode during the um, during the scene where you are foraging for mushrooms at one point in silhouette at the like right in front of the camera between you and the characters, this giant kind of uh, Civil War battleship cruises by and you start to notice is making this strange wailing sound as you do. And you think like, is this thing haunted? Is it is this the noise that the machine makes? But you you discover as you examine its silhouette, that it is an unmanned ship that is uh, crawling with uh, with like dozens of cats, which is such a weird little non sequitur, uh, but a really kind of evocative um, moment in the game. And that the characters kind of comment on it and talk about the history of it. And, and there's a lot of that kind of thing throughout this episode, which is what I like the most about it is that you know, in between your stops, you'll usually, you know, roll up alongside something else that's like interesting in the world. And uh, the character will take a moment to kind of explain to you the history of that site and that location. It always has that feeling of local oral history of these weird places that people have kind of, you know, post hoc uh, justified. And um, yeah, it's just a, I, I found them to be uh, really kind of interesting and exciting. That's the kind of thing that I, I really love to see. It reminded me of those weird, you know, side of the road stops that you would find in Act One. But otherwise, you end up having that inevitable encounter with the distillery members uh, as Shannon and Conway are separated, and um, you end up find that uh, Conway uh, willingly went with the distillery members to work uh, his endless role and has been removed from the party of the game from that point forward. We can keep moving to the next interlude. This is Un Pueblo de Nada, which means the, uh, I think it's the village of nowhere or the people of nowhere. <laughs> Sorry, my my Spanish is not. Village. Okay. Yeah. Very the good. Village <laughs> of nothing or the village of no one. Yeah. 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 It is a uh, public access station broadcast that is uh, fairly mundane in its nature. Uh, you play the kind of like the in-studio producer uh, that is kind of coordinating various things that are happening around the studio, uh, the single room setting that again kind of pivots around a central point as you kind of look around and interact with things throughout the room. But uh, there's a, a very bad storm roaring outside and throughout the night, the room ends up uh, flooding and it's kind of left ambiguous for now anyways, as to what ends up happening. If the members survive because as you are in the previous act uh you do hear talk about you know the tragedy of what happened at the at the local access station and you know there's a lot of that kind of thing throughout the game of like things being mentioned outside of the chronological order in which they occur and so you're like oh are these people going to die tonight is you know something really bad going to happen here and you have that kind of dread hanging over you the whole time weirdly enough this was also the script for this was reenacted by live actors and you can see the entire <laughs> broadcast on uh, cardboard computers, YouTube channel. It's, it's odd. And I, I don't mm. know why it exists, but it does. And it's very interesting <laughs> to see. Did they have, 
a real crow because he's my favorite character. <laughs> well, in the in the live action broadcast, it's just kind of like the camera's pointed forwards and you can hear the crow giving a couple like affirmative chirps <laughs> off screen, <laughs> but you never actually see it. So uh, fair enough. Yeah. So it's that was that was definitely a, a reenactment. It wasn't that they filmed it as a reference for creating the, the sequence in the game. No, I think it was a reenactment because again, like wow. these these teams have aspirations for um mm-hmm. you know these kind of theatrical uh, types of setups and so you know it is already written like a stage play i think they just went ahead yep. and uh, hired some local actors to have it produced and that takes us on to the final act act five which as we said was a long time coming and i think when it arrived nobody really expected <laughs> what it ended up being um this is a very mm-hmm. strange act uh conway is out of yeah. the party now you know, I think a lot of people expected in traditional video game fashion for this to be like the redemption of Conway or the rescue of Conway. You know, the mm. characters banding together and, you know, going into the distillery to get him back so that he could finish his journey. But that's really not what ends up happening. You know, you get the sense throughout the throughout the game that um, people are kind of uh, viewed as like there's so much like a everything is drenched in the oral history and people are a collection of the things that they do. So even though Conway himself didn't escort the, the antique furniture to its final destination, the fact that the friends that he inspired and the friends that he made along the way did was equivalent in a sense to him completing the journey because it is the, the act of him, you know, the, the intangible him that continued on. Um, it it feels uh, almost like a, a grieving process or a mm-hmm. pilgrimage or something like that, doesn't it? It's, it's really, um, it's a really interesting yeah. final act. Yeah, it's not what I expected at all. This final act takes place in the immediate aftermath of in Pueblo de Nada, where the uh, the flood has just happened. the t- The TV station you can actually see in this little village, you know, freshly destroyed, and characters are picking up after them. The this the small kind of shanty town. Uh, flooded. It's this town that is separated from all roads. It is not connected by anything. To get to it, you either have to be airlifted in, you have to come up from underneath, as the characters did from the Echo, the river uh, underground, or you can follow the power line through the forest on foot, as one of the characters in that interlude did. And you spend the entire game, or the entire act, not playing as any of the characters that you've come to control this entire time, but rather playing as a cat chasing a dragonfly around this kind of circular village. And as the cat gets close to the various characters, which you direct uh, through kind of controlling this dragonfly, which the cat is chasing, then, you know, it'll initiate these moments of either passive conversation that happens without you doing anything, or you can trigger uh, conversational or, you know, actions being actions taking place by meowing at them it's very unusual. It's not at all what anyone was expecting. It's a lot more kind of like passive and removed from the characters than I think people were expecting from a finale. And so many years after Act Four, it was just a, it was a strange moment when this landed. Um, I, I liked it from the beginning because again, like I was coming off Act Four, feeling a little bit cold, and so for something that was relatively short. Uh, did not suffer from the same kind of like overriding that Act Four I think had. Um, it, its script was a lot more manageable. It was a lot more visual. It's it's very beautiful 
as well. Uh, the scenery is striking. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, in this flood, it, you see these two horses that, um, that have died in the flood and kind of throughout the, the progression of time is kind of marked by the town kind of coming together to bury and honor these horses, which they call the neighbors. So I, this is probably the part that I felt suffered the most from pacing problems. Mm. And I may be alone in this, but, uh, but by God, that's how I feel. Um, so I, I really like the scenery. I, I think it, as you say, Ryan, it is very, very good looking. It's a beautiful scene. Uh, and I, I really liked how it ended. Um, but from the beginning kind of to that ending point where you finally do see kind of the culmination of everyone coming together. It just felt a little too drawn out for me. Uh, and, and I think that might be because I had some trouble like just kind of finding whatever the triggers were to move the story along. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. don't have a problem necessarily with that. Like I didn't, I, I didn't expect to be just like bouncing from point to point to point, you know, it's fine to, to be able to, uh, to have a, uh, like a, a bit of a, a ramble through the town as, as this dragonfly and cat pair. Um, but, it felt to me like they wanted you to do something and they wanted you to see specifically these things. Whereas for most of the rest of the game there, it wasn't that like you, there were a lot of things to see and a lot of things to experience. But if you maybe missed some things like, like when you're driving around in, in the map, in the town map, and you know, there are a lot of things on that, uh, on that map that you could see and that you could do, but you don't necessarily need to do everything in order to progress. It just yeah. it felt very nebulous to me as to what exactly it was that I needed to do. And that was a little bit frustrating for me. Now, like I said, it was it was um, beautiful and I liked the the theming of it. But the actual gameplay for me was a bit of a sticking point, which was kind of disappointing since it's, you know, the end of the game. That's fair. But this but the ending song was beautiful. And I really liked how how that all came together at the end. Um, that that was nice. I think after the length and kind of nebulous nature and also the uh, the real sort of downer, heart-wrenching moments in, in Act 4, I think I did appreciate this more light kind of... I mean, light in both ways, lighting sort of tone. And I think for the first time, you're above ground and it's daytime and you're mm, not yeah. sort of in a cave or in the night or in pouring rain or something like it tonally and physically feels very different from basically everything you've seen and just kind of just running around as a cat chasing a dragonfly that kind of looks like a, a spot of light is it's a, it's an odd choice for them to suddenly make after you've played a bunch of different characters but sort of inserting yourself into conversations and and just overhearing bits and pieces and gently nudging the, the direction that some of the dialogue goes without anything feeling too sort of too heavy or or too dark is i think after the other acts especially because i basically played an act every day for the course of five or six days i think it was kind of a welcome change but i can totally see where you're coming from uh yeah i think act five as a whole i i tend to agree um Leah. I, I had some problems just navigating the space and i think because of the nature of it being a kind of like rotating around a central point almost it feels like the conversations you can 
go to are a bit more spread out than they need to be. So I I did kind of find myself running backwards and forwards a bit. Um, but overall, what they were aiming for with Act Five, which is kind of Conway's story, is is largely done. You've got this group of people who are carrying on his his last objective, if you like, who only came together because of of him and that's definitely not to say that he's the central character but this feels like as i mentioned a uh, part of their grieving process going to do this one last thing together before they all make a step forward in their lives it kind of feels like the end of a film where you know almost like a reunion type thing where here's where they are all at now type situation because you are this cat going around to each character and kind of piecing together oh here's where they're at here's what's happening here but the fact that it's all couched in this completely different place with a lot of characters you you haven't met before around this uh, funeral that's being held but not for the character you might expect it to be held for it's for these two horses i liked the fact that you're putting these characters that have come together and formed a sort of family unit, almost a very loose family unit, in amongst a community that is very isolated and only exists because of the interpersonal relationships and dependencies they have developed to the point where the two town's horses die tragically in a flood and that is a communal event that needs to happen mm. for for this community. Um, and I think it's it's really cool that 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 whole setting, even though it feels like to me it kind of comes from nowhere uh, logistically, thematically it works really really well for me as a as a bookend to the story. Even though obviously we have one more interlude to go, not really interlude, postlude, postscript uh, yeah. to go. But yeah, I I really liked Act Five as a bookend. Yeah, if you think of the entire Kentucky Route Zero as like a five act play, then um, this is this is not the you know, conclusion of the story. This is the denouement. You know, this is like the conclusion mm-hmm. of Conway's story was Act Four, and it was not a victorious end. Maybe it was him, you know, making a choice for himself. And in that sense, there might be a little bit of a victory there. But uh, his story was a tragedy in a very traditional sense of the word. And this is the aftermath of the story, rather than being the conclusion of the story. Uh, the story, for all intents and purposes, has already concluded but um the fact that you know we had this moment of like of being able to kind of like philosophically reflect on everything that's happened and you know let let the characters internalize their journey and kind of create this this found family together um especially with Ezra being a child on his own of uh you know Junebug and Johnny having these thoughts of you know what does it mean to be a to be human and to be a family, are we in a place where we can accept more people into our family unit? You know, to see Shannon try to kind of you know find ways to to you know keep on you know, to to let go of the grudge that she holds against you know the the power company and the um, you know for killing her parents essentially and and society for kind of burying their town and. It's kind of a fresh start for everyone in a way. And you get this this bright space. You finally find Five Dogwood Drive, which is this weird concrete like frame of a house. It's not even like there's no walls on two sides of it. You know, it's it's completely like hollow and and empty. And apparently it wasn't even there the previous night. It just blew in with the wind or something like that. It's very strange. <laughs> but um but it's it, 
for some reason, like it has this, this mystical feeling of, of being home and you can actually affect the type of home that it turns into, you know, through the conversations that you have throughout that, throughout that chapter, you, you can turn it into like one of five different types of, it could be a recording studio. It could be a dog house. It could be, you know, a number of different things. And, um, and the characters at the end of it all are kind of uh, standing around and um, just kind of enjoying being with each other in that space, kind of isolated off in the middle of nowhere. It's a, it's an odd ending to a game, but it's kind of beautiful in a way. Um, someone on the Steam forums noted, and I like this, <laughs> uh, that uh, you know, as the light kind of fades out on the scene of um, this kind of overhead helicopter shot in a way pulling away from this empty uh five dogwood drive house with the characters in it all you know tuning their instruments and and chatting and hanging out with one another <laughs> um it does so in the shape of a skull with um with two trees up above kind of acting as like the eye sockets and i don't know if that's like intentional or whether it's just kind of a, a trick of the lighting or something but it's uh it's kind of it's kind of a funny um a little image to put on to the end of the game anyways. <laughs> Finally, there is the death of the hired man. Uh, again, this feels a little bit more optional than the other interludes, mm-hmm. just because you do have to follow a very kind of specific line of encounters, of missable encounters, Yeah, I actually didn't get this. Yeah, yeah. I had to look it up afterwards as well. Um, not because I didn't earn it, but because there was some weirdness with my save file at various points. And so the game doesn't think that I've completed the first three acts. It's a whole thing, whatever. But anyways, it's, uh, yeah, you are, the camera is kind of focused on a television that is playing like soap operas and NASCAR races and stuff like that. And you can hear these two characters that you've known from throughout the journey kind of conversing. We've already talked about how one of the characters wanted to put on the play death of the hired man, but uh, couldn't assemble people together and then ends up kind of living through the events of death of the hired man through the course of the scene. Uh, just an interesting little button to put on the package uh, right at the end of all, all things there. That takes us through Kentucky route zero. <laughs> oh my gosh. We have uh we have some wonderful correspondence, but we're running super long. So I think I'm going to have to skip through those unfortunately, but we do have time as always for our three word reviews every week at, at the on the date of recording, we put out a call on Twitter for reviews in just three words. Um, you can be much more concise than we have been <laughs> in describing this game. Uh, we have uh, several people who have described Kentucky Route Zero in three words, including Harvey Jones, who says third floor bears. Quiet Paul says enjoyed the songs. Tales from the Backlog says important modern story. From Tolkien Taters, we have funny, poetic, authentic. Numero Sarja says, worth the wait. Robin Enrico says, the road home. Michael Lowe says, catching the June bug. Uh, Atik Bagwan says, on further reflection. And Ludonarrative FM says, bury the neighbors, which was, which was separated from the other Twitter responses for being potentially uh, offensive content. You know how they do? They kind of like make you click through to see the, but I, I, I you know, in the context, the neighbors are Yikes. the names of the horses. It's, it's okay. Nobody's yeah, sure. threatening to it's bury their threat. actual neighbors. Little <laughs> <laughs> narrative. Sorry, we got you. <laughs> All right. Let us summarize. Uh, there's, you know, 
this is a very dense game. We spent a long time talking about it. There's a lot of very kind of surface level stuff we didn't even get around to talking about the 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 music, the graphics in a lot of cases. So anything else that you want to incorporate into your summaries, you have uh, you have an open floor to do so. John, let's talk. Uh, let's uh, let's hear from you on your experience through Kentucky Route Zero. The thing that's really stuck with me, and it's been 18 months or so since I first played this, is that it's very easy to go into a game like this, I think maybe not get the full kind of intended experience because in my situation, as previously mentioned, I'm not particularly au fait with, I think, what a lot of the sort of source material references and things we're getting at. And that might sound like... You, you might be put off and the idea of, well, I don't know any of the the backstory to this. I'm, I don't understand this concept very much, so I'm not going to enjoy this game. I think that I can safely say that for me, that hasn't been the case. Like, okay, I, I didn't understand everything. I didn't get all the little characters' names, references, and uh, don't understand the Americana or the uh, the idea of the great American story. But that didn't stop me from playing through the game and reading everything that was built into this as a standalone experience and still finding it to be a really I, I was almost about to say wholesome I'm not sure that that's the right word for it but kind of a really compelling really well fleshed out uh really emotional and heartbreaking and obviously absolutely dripping with uh a kind of thematic resonant and just even even not understanding, I think, a lot of where this game came out of, uh, it's it's still possible to play it and have a really, really solid experience. So, I mean, it's it's a very kind of wordy game. It's There's a lot of really involved. There's I didn't come to this opinion as much as I think maybe the other panelists have done, but the idea that there are points where it is, it is overwritten possibly a little bit long in the tooth uh, i think a, a very fair uh, fair opinions to have of it and you know it's not necessarily going to be everybody's cup of tea but i certainly think it's it's very 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 well worth checking out no matter what your your kind of situation and your background and your interest in this sort of thing is like at the core of it it's a a really fantastic well-written story that probably it should be um it should be experienced by as many people as possible fantastic thank you very much leah how about you yeah i, I agree with a lot of what john was saying uh, one of the points that i wanted to make was that uh, i think it would be very easy to see a game like this as being kind of pretentious and uh, as trying to potentially do too much uh, and assume too much about the people that are play that are playing it but it 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 bypasses that for me. Um, I, I have literature. I have a literature degree. I have two literature degrees, <laughs> but they're in 16th century British literature. So like they don't, they don't help me here. I'm, I'm, I'm useless here. <laughs> but that said, I, 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 I feel like you don't have to get all of the references. Um, and it, it has its own story to tell. And I think that it does a good enough job of incorporating the meaning of those references rather than just throwing them in there as like name drops, which would be what would have killed it for me. It doesn't do that. Like, yes, it's got characters that are named after uh, authors and, uh, and after important people that, you know, they, they, they have put in there as, as references, but 
the the writing and the scenarios and the atmosphere kind of stand on their own as telling the story that they want to tell. And so for that, I think that it is very worth checking out, especially if you have Game Pass, because I mean, it's, you know, that's that's always a caveat these days. If it's on Game Pass, then, you know, you don't you have very little to lose by giving it a shot. Um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this game. Um, it will stick with me for a while. And uh, I, I do recommend it. Yeah, my opinion, uh, I this is one of my favorite games of all time. Like I, I find this to be just endlessly beautiful, uh, to be endlessly compelling. I think it's so rare to find games that are able to tell stories in ways that are so kind of thematically resonant that are so kind of ambiguous in what they, what they put forward that allow you to do so much of the kind of like a reading into the, the history and the characters and the, this the sense of like the lived in world um as much as this game like there's there's really very little else that's quite like it um i'll, I'll say and again it's a, a game that i keep recommending over and over but it keeps on being relevant i can't help it you know <laughs> talk to whoever's scheduling these Pick, keep on picking the relevant shows but um uh this game pairs very very well with uh, where the water tastes like wine a game that has been in multiple bundles you might already own on on various consoles or uh, PC. Um, it's a a game about kind of traveling across the American South and across the entirety of America eventually to learn the stories of the people that live there, to spread those stories and to see those stories kind of transform into these larger than life kind of folk tales and urban legends as you do. And there's something about that kind of like oral history and the fact that like that you know when society's not looking the oral history can become real you know this kind of these urban legends can just become the logic under which this kind of forgotten you know backwater part of the country end up end up manifesting and um there's something that's so magical about that there's something that is so like i guess dignifying to like kind of the collective collective of humanity and the imagination of humanity uh in there i i find the game to be just endlessly beautiful to look at the the scenes and the silhouettes that it cuts any moment at which something happens in silhouette close to the close to the camera and between you and the characters is really kind of striking and and surprising um the game just has so many really clever turns throughout that you know even though i'm still a little bit like I'm I'm a little bit cool on Act Four. Uh, there's you know a few kind of little nitpicks that I'd have here and there throughout, but um, overall, there's there's really nothing else like this. And um, I think it is you know kind of essential reading for anyone who's really into kind of you know inventive, artsy, but still you know very accessible video games. Um, yeah, I, I'd recommend it you know, pretty much universally. It's a, it's a fantastic, incredible game. <laughs> James, how about you? I absolutely adore this game. It's played on my mind uh, no end and uh, getting ready for this show has been a hard thing because a lot of the, the things that it's forced me to think about about this game and about my experiences with it and uh, just what that means for life in general is, has been tough to face up to. If I was to start off anywhere, I would say that this 
game sort of opposes magical realism to economic realism. And in this world, magic is often presented as something that is grounded and uh, almost tangible or or just mundane in a, in a way that the labyrinthine bureaucracy that we see in in a couple of different spots here and the way that systems work to obfuscate what they do and to to not be tangible and to be completely unknown it just sets those apart and magic should be the thing that we don't really understand and the the way that an office place office space works should be something quite easy to understand but that's just not true those are opposite to one another and opposite to what you'd expect and and that got me thinking about a couple of the the pieces of feedback we'd had were about how this game could be seen as pretentious and Leah you mentioned that and and it could be over the heads of of some people and I certainly don't have the background in the the literature this references the art that this references um, so it could have been a game that was esoteric but I didn't find it was for me I found this very readable for me and the reason that was in a similar way to the way it presents magic, the way it presents the characters. I have touchstones that I can put here. Junebug is a character that I absolutely adore in this. She is a character I aspire to be. Found herself in a situation she did not like and is working hard. And it is not easy, but she is working hard to change that, to find a place where she can be happier and can be fulfilled. And then you compare that to Conway's story, uh, which hit me like an absolute train and it's not all that this game is it's not even necessarily the central part of this game but i think there is a reason that we've kind of dwelled on it quite a bit here and it's that he is a man who because of his previous mistakes uh and because of the situation he finds himself in to some degree my reading is he gives up he accepts the systems around him are what they are they cannot be changed and his guilt and shame pushes him into that position. He just accepts that this is the route for him. This is what he's going to accept. He doesn't look for anything more, doesn't look for a way out. And it speaks to the innocuous ways in everyday life we lose or just cede control. And where we cede control to an organization, they will let us down. They will take because that's what they're set up to do. And what the end of this game shows is that where we put our faith and and a certain amount of our um, control into people, throughout this game, actually, individuals very rarely let other individuals down. It, only where it's at the behest of a corporation or an organisation or a system that is out of their control. And I think that's a really, that's a universal truth to me, but it's a universal uh, story or a universal um, theme that can appeal to anyone. And that's this game, whether or not you get the the references and get the, the sort of where it comes from, it absolutely takes you on the the path of where it's going to. And I can't say enough good things about this game, even if I can't articulate them terribly well. It's, it's absolutely fantastic and it's been an absolute joy to think about over the years since I played it and to revisit with all of you today. So thank you. Well, and with that, we have made the long journey home. It just remains for me, Ryan, to thank John, James and Leah, as well as our correspondents and of course you for listening. Make sure that you're subscribed because in next issue, our subs are getting a little naughty in Subnautica. Black smoke's arising and it surely is a train.
Two dollars. 